How has the field of pediatrics changed in the past 30 years? How do you talk to a concerned parent about vaccines and autism? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Dr. Paul Young, a medical educator and pediatrician here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. I've got a great guest today, Dr. Paul Young. Uh, good morning, Dr. Young. I'm glad you can come on the podcast. Thank you. Um, so um, let's talk about pediatrics. Okay. Uh, you know, thinking back to your med school days, I mean, what what got you interested in, in peds? How can, how did you choose this path? So when I went to medical school, I was actually planning to be a psychiatrist. And, okay. Uh, well, you're in the right <laughs> office then. <laughs> um, but... Uh, during the psychi- during the rotation as a medical student, which in that in that era we they clearly separated the first two years from the last two years, uh, but the clinical rotations, um, I sat with a psychiatrist who was actually an analyst, mm-hmm. and uh, I found the time to be very depressing, mm-hmm. and uh, I realize now that that was probably a diagnostic uh, tool. But at the time, <laughs> I felt like this is not something I can do. Mm-hmm. In contrast, the pediatric rotation, you know, people, the, the pediatricians that I worked with, and it was somewhat similar to here. It was a separate children's hospital, uh, freestanding away from the rest of the, the uh, medical school and, and the uh, teaching hospitals. The people were pretty happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the role models were were there, uh, and that's really what got me into it. I had a summer elective that I did with a couple of pediatricians at the hospital, and it was in Chicago, the Northwestern Hospital, which has changed its name, but it used to be called Children's Memorial Hospital. It has a, I can't actually remember the donor's name now, but uh, but it, it has a new a new name. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a good experience um, as a medical student, and then I ended up doing two years of residency mm-hmm. there. What attracted you to Utah? How did you come here? So I was I after the sort of arduous course. I, after finishing two years of residency, I did two years in the military. It was the Vietnam era, so most most people ended up in the military. And then I did a year in Boston, and then I went to Vermont and was on the faculty there for twenty years. Um, I got remarried. Uh, my wife is a pediatrician, also a pediatric cardiologist, and uh, she's a somewhat younger and was finishing her training. And basically, we were just looking for a new place to go. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I knew very little about Utah. I had skied here once, um, but I didn't know very much about the pediatric department. And my wife was a pretty hot property. She was had an excellent mentor, and so she was being recruited by a bunch of places. Um, so we visited half a dozen, maybe more, academic centers, UCSF, Vanderbilt, Duke, whatever. But this was a great fit for both of us. It was, a, And uh, I was very fortunate uh, to, to land um, in, in the Division of General Pediatrics. I had a, more opportunity to do some teaching and research than I had in Vermont. So. But I uh, love Utah. That's yeah. great. <laughs> so how long have you been here now? Uh, I came in 92, so just in, in getting into 23 years. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest surprise about coming to Utah? Um, well, the accessibility of, as far as putting aside the professional part, 
I'll come back to that, just the accessibility in the outdoors. So people think of Vermont as being very pretty, very rural, which is true, but it's there's no public land like mm-hmm. there is in Utah. So the land is not accessible as opposed to here. So when I'm recruiting people for to come here, I talk about, you know, you can get in your car, drive 15 minutes, get out at the trailhead, walk 15 or 20 minutes, you come to a sign, you're entering the wilderness, which I think is very appealing for mm-hmm. somebody like me. Uh, when I came to the Department of Pediatrics, it was it was actually smaller than it is now, although the Division of General Pediatrics was, was pretty potent. Um, there were some well-known people in the field uh, here who... Uh, were were great with me, and I had a chance to engage in a little bit more academic research. Um, we got a couple of grants, and you know, basically have kind of evolved into a role of mentoring um, with junior faculty, and mm-hmm. still teaching. About half my time is in the pediatric clinic. So that was the biggest surprise professionally, just how like um, how big how- the department was, okay. and and uh, what a what a sort of potent force, particularly in some areas, uh, you know, genetics and the basic science researchers, mm-hmm. um, cardiology, you know, those, those divisions, uh, I, I really, as I said, knew very little about what to expect mm-hmm. uh, when I came here. So. so for those who are listening who are maybe unfamiliar with the term, what does general pediatrics mean? What, what does that encompass? So good question. Uh, it's, basically primary care pediatrics. So um, general pediatrics from an academic point of view are our academic organizations called the Academic Pediatric Association. And it it inclu- includes people who do sort of what I do, primary care pediatrics, but also hospitalists, emergency medicine, uh, child abuse. Um, so people that are really not organ specialists. So kind of focus on the whole child. And, you know, I think many of the specialists think they focus on the whole child, but, you know, their interest is primarily and as appropriately, um, you know, on the particular specialty that they're involved in, whether it's gastroenterology or neurology or whatever. Whereas general pediatrics is, again, for what I do, is mostly primary care, so Mm -hmm. first contact care. Mm -hmm. And then do you follow these... Like infants and babies, as they grow over time, yeah. and they become you know teenagers and yeah. Adults. So I I've been here been here twenty three years and was at the other place for twenty years. So I've had a lot of opportunity to see babies from from really we pick up babies in the well baby nursery. That's mm-hmm. a big part of this division of general pediatrics, uh, and then follow them really. When we say 18, but the reality is we see kids older than that, especially... It's hard to say goodbye. It's Especially yeah. children, the jargon term here is children with special health care needs, so medically complex children. We have some difficulty finding uh, adult specialists who want to take them on, with the exception of our med peds folks, uh, who are generally a good resource. Uh, so and we and, up, and those are individuals who are double-boarded and... Pediatrics as right. well as internal medicine. Right. So a four-year residency as opposed to three years. So basically, I, I think it's about 50-50, two years of me- internal medicine, two years of general of pediatrics. Um, so there's quite a few of those people now that have graduated from this program that are still in the community. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like, you know, you've, you've probably seen a lot of changes in general pediatrics and pediatrics and, you know, 
as a as a whole. Yes. Well, what have you seen? What have you noticed? Well, the you know an increasing emphasis on on the on the medically complex children. I think the the survival rates of children with congenital anomalies of all sorts, um, uh, including you know the extreme premature. So when I was a medical student, you know, basically twenty eight, twenty nine weeks, thirty weeks were considered the limits of viability and. Now the neonatologists, you know, have a great success rate with preemies as, as small as 24 weeks, or even in some cases, rare cases, but you know, somewhat less. So, but many of those kids survive with with problems um, that require uh, ongoing, long-term care. So the field of taking care of children with special health care needs, medically complex children, has definitely evolved. So most pediatricians are going to have 10 or 15% of their most general pediatricians, community practitioners, whether it's in private practice or academic practice, are going to have 10, 15% of their patients in that category. You know, then the success of, of immunizations. Uh, so, you know, when I was a resident, we always had kids with H. flu meningitis on the floor. Never see that anymore. Mm-hmm. So that vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccine, for, for the same reason. So those those vaccines in particular make a big difference as far as hospitalizations go. Um, we're still having problems as currently right now with you know some so, so-called vaccine-hesitant or vaccine-reluctant parents. Uh, so we we're currently within a, have an outbreak in the country of, of measles as a result of that. That must be a new development as well, because like you know, I think ten, twenty, thirty years ago, like I don't think you would see the resistance or the reluctance towards vaccine. Not certainly not as publicized. First of all, there weren't nearly as many vaccines. So, again, when I started, we were basically doing diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, DTP, polio, but. The the live viral vaccines, measles, mumps, rubella, came along in the 70s, uh, maybe the late 60s. Um, but the H flu, pneumococcal, rotavirus, uh, chickenpox, these are all relatively new vaccines that have all that have come out since since I've been in practice. So we're we're using a lot more immunizations, and to some extent, I think parents object to the number of times, number of vaccine, number of shots that we're give, actually giving their children. And then, you know, I think the, the, uh, the internet provides people with a, a place to go who have, maybe have some hesitancy. And, and they can find each other. And, and they can find an each other. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and so there's, you know, there's definitely uh, clusters of communities in the United States where immunization rates are pretty low. And that's a potential tinderbox. So, mm-hmm. how how do you? I mean, I mean, we kind of go off on a tangent, but that's why I love sure. doing these podcasts. Like, so, Doctor Young, if you're with a parent and they express a reluctance, or you know, even an ambivalence towards vaccines, how do you handle that? I mean, how do you, you know, how do you approach that with someone? Well, um, so there's a couple of ways. Uh, there are practices now, and particularly this is becoming somewhat more. Uh, recommended by certain leaders in the field to basically not accept patients in that situation that it's too dangerous to have an un- unimmunized child in their in their waiting room in their practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we certainly don't do that here. Um, what I try to do on a one to one basis is try to 
have parents accept the reality that vaccines are not homogeneous, that every vaccine is like has its own risk and benefit ratio. So some of the vaccines, polio vaccine, for example, has, in this country at least, not so much benefit. I mean, there's just not any polio to get. If you're traveling to Nigeria or uh, Afghanistan or someplace, you'd want to be immunized against polio. But you're probably not taking a big risk with your child's health um, if you choose not to get polio vaccine. On the other hand, polio vaccine turns out to be very safe, so the risk is very low. So the risk-benefit ratio is is probably relatively small. Measles vaccine, measles is a potentially serious disease. I've spent some time in developing countries and and have seen kids hospitalized with measles, seen uh, bacterial complications, particularly meningitis, pneumonia. So that disease is out there. Uh, you can get that disease. And, and the one that's sort of trendy right now is pertussis. So there's lots of whooping cough. Vaccine isn't great. It, the duration isn't great. So, again, the benefit of the vaccine requires multiple injections over a period of time. So I try to sell each vaccine separately. What's out there? What's the risk? What's the potential downside? Mm-hmm. You know, as far as anybody knows, the, the the popular opinion of measles vaccine producing autism, I mean, that's been widely discredited. And I, I think anybody who uses that as an excuse is, is probably not being really honest. I think they're, they're just don't trust mm-hmm the medical establishment, the drug companies, and so forth. And yeah. I think when, you know, because I'm a child psychiatrist, so I kind of yeah. work with similar patient populations, uh-huh. and talking to parents sometimes, these decisions are never really based on uh, information. It's more like an emotional decision. Right. And then it's very anecdotal because someone knows someone that knows someone that took the vaccine and right. subsequently got diagnosed with autism. So. Um, it, it's a really, it's a really hard issue. It's very sticky, and I, I see our role as uh, healthcare providers is providing, you know, up to date, evidence based medicine and trying to inform our patients about, you know, like you said, these are the risks yeah. and benefits of yeah. pursuing this treatment, be it a vaccine or a medication. So, yeah, I think it. I mean, I try to deal with it as I say. It's kind of a rational approach, since the decision making, as you suggest, is often irrational. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but it's just not based on reason. Uh, it, those two things come in conflict. So I, I would certainly not pr- pr- say that my approach has been particularly successful. I have sold some vaccines okay. to some people, uh, you know, mm-hmm. particularly the, the meningitis story. So, you know, people mm-hmm. people know about that. And those vaccines are, particu- are, are among our best, va- best vaccines, mm-hmm. the Haemophilus influenza vaccine and the strep pneumo vaccine. Are, they're among the safest. Uh, and I don't think anybody's ever attributed any side effects to those. And the diseases are devastating. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, getting back on track. So sure. sounds like you know, more and more children or babies are being born earlier. Which causes some, you know, special healthcare needs down the road. But on the flip side, it sounds like more and more kids are being vaccinated. What other changes have you seen? Well, the, you know, the availability of an- antibiotics, which has become nowadays sort of a two-edged sword. I think we've been guilty in the past of overusing antibiotics for because they're so successful in when they're appropriate. Um, you know, we've basically eliminated rheumatic fever, for example, by appropriate treatment of, of streptococcal infection. So 
you know, when I was growing up, my sister had rheumatic fever, was in bed for a year in our home. So, you know, and I saw rheumatic fever regularly as a, as a resident, but that, that approach to what's understood and, and the rational use of antibiotics in the appropriate situation. Now we're backing away, you know, ear infections, uh, recommendation is basically for kids that are old enough where you can monitor their symptoms. So even over a year, over two years, we're not giving antibiotics. So that part has changed. The financing has changed. Um, but I always, I, I hear that a lot. Uh, and I know have friends in, in private practice who have a lot of problems dealing with insurance companies. Fortunately, in this environment, I'm sort of protected from that and Somebody else has to worry about that. But I, I tell students, you know, there's been a lot of changes, but when you shut the door of the examining room and you're one-to-one with a parent um, or a child or and a child, depending on the child's age, that hasn't changed very much. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to, trying to be helpful, trying to understand what the parent's concerns are, mm-hmm. what they interpret their child's, condi- you know, uh, illness or condition or symptom or sign is and try to you know, be as helpful as we, as we can. I, I think, uh, you know, fortunately most kids are healthy and most kids are going to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, They're very resilient in that way. Very resilient. And so, you know, it's it's a very satisfying uh, area to, to to help to have parents understand kind of what you're, what you're about, what you're trying to do. You know, we general pediatrics, primary care, we spend – 40% of our time dealing with kids who are healthy, who are mm-hmm. coming in for well-child visits and well-child checkups. And so getting to know that child and getting to know that family and sort of being part of their their lives uh, over, as I said, an extended period of time, it's mm-hmm. hard to hard to beat that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There aren't very many specialties that, that have that kind of relationship with their patients. And to me, though, those... Those relationships, those connections—it's what makes us human in a way. I mean, we don't exist in a vacuum, and yeah. you know, I, you know, I, I teach medical students too, not in the same capacity as you do, but that's one of the messages I try to communicate. That you're right. At the end of the day, it's like two people in our exam room, or maybe three if there's yeah. a small child, and you know, sometimes they're in crisis, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're upset, sometimes they're sick, but you're just trying to help them and figure it yeah. out, and that's kind of what life's about. Yeah, when I talk to people who are thinking about pediatrics, I always get a little nervous when they tell me, well, the reason they want to be in pediatrics is because they like working with children. And they don't quite get it that, that what you're really going to be working with are the parents. Mm-hmm. So if you're not comfortable dealing with adults, uh, you're not going to have a great career in, in at least primary care pediatrics. Some of the subspecialties where you, you know, it's, it's, it's more technological, neonatology, um, so forth. There's, there's definitely going to be a role where you're just dealing with the child and the child's illness. But even in that situation, you have parents who are interested in knowing what you're doing. So, not being, and it, it, it sort of brings me back to well, my interest initially in going to when I decided I was going to go to medical school to be in mental health. I mean, there's a lot of mental health in primary care, mm-hmm. and particularly in primary care pediatrics. So, mm-hmm. opportunities for both prevention and, mm-hmm. and treatment. What other advice would you give to, you know, applicants or students or anyone who's interested in the field of pediatrics? I mean, what does the future hold? What would you say to them? Well, I think pediatrics is particularly appealing because of the wide variety of, of options from from uh, what I do from primary care, which is basically dealing with, with healthy children who 
have acute illnesses to uh, subspecialists that are as subspecialized as liver transplant, uh, you know, as, as part of pediatric gastroenterology. Opportunities to do uh, research uh, in a wide area, gen- genetic research, uh, basic science research. So I I think the future of pediatrics is is very bright. We're not going to stop having children. Utah has a high birth rate. Um, changes in terms of the way st- people are structured, you know, solo practice is probably a thing of the past. But practicing in, in a large group um, with a, uh, financing, uh, prepaid financing, that's not quite the right word, but mm-hmm. capitation mm-hmm. where we're dealing with uh, new approaches to make care not only successful but also at, at lower cost. These are going to be great challenges for people mm-hmm. in the future. But again, I don't, I don't foresee a time when, when the pleasure of working with family, of the family and a child together, is ever going to change. Whatever, mm-hmm. however you get paid mm-hmm. to do it. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the joy of it. Yeah. So, um, and like you, you've kind of touched upon like research. Are, are, what are your research interests now? What are you, what have you looked in in the past? What are you doing now? I mean, what's what's kind of been your focus? Well, I, one of the great things about general pediatrics is there's there are always unanswered questions that come up in the, <laughs> the clinical situation yeah. every day. So, so my current focus has been on, on the, uh, the well newborn, and we just had a paper published about the management of babies whose mothers were diagnosed with chorioamnionitis. So that's generally considered to be a risk factor for the baby becoming infected and the standard treatment has been to give presumptive antibiotics for 48 hours until the baby's cultures are negative but we've in, exploited a, a system that was developed by somebody else to maybe a, approve what to to employ what's what we're calling a kinder gentler approach so so using uh, various combinations of the risk factors that were noted during the pregnancy and the baby's condition. We've been able to decrease the use of antibiotics uh, in that in that population. Mm-hmm. I've done some research with obesity. This is a very big problem. I mm-hmm. still I still think the uh, we have a long way to go in terms of obesity treatment. And maybe not quite so far to go in knowing what might be useful for obesity prevention. Um, we know kind of what works. We I think that the uh, belief that we understand the the reasons beca- people become obese are maybe too simplistic it's a very complex problem that involves genetics and environmental factors but the only the only tools we have are cal- d- diet and exercise i mean mm-hmm. that that does those are but that doesn't mean that the cause is that somebody's been inactive and eating a crappy diet. No, in mm-hmm. some cases that's true. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, reasoning from what the tools we have for prevention and treatment to understanding the the causes is 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 is, is oversimplified. So, I've been trying to work with people uh, around prevention. We we have a project at our teen mother and child clinic where we've been talking with women, young women, teenagers. Um, early in their pregnancy about lifestyle changes for themselves during the pregnancy and for the first two years of the infant's life, 
to try to role model some some healthier lifestyle behaviors. Mm-hmm. It's definitely needed. Uh, you've, yeah. I mean, Dr. Young, you've touched upon a wide variety of areas. It sounds like it sounds like a very beautiful and fascinating kind of career you've had, kind of helping different people, different groups of people in these, in these many different spots. So. Yeah, people used to talk about the quote-unquote dissatisfied pediatrician syndrome. I, I've never been dissatisfied. I, I still enjoy it. I'm nearing the end of my career. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm certainly old enough that I should have retired <laughs> a while ago. But, uh, it's hard to walk you know, away. I, yeah. I enjoy what I do and uh, you know, I'll keep doing it as long as they let me. Mm-hmm. A question you know, sometimes I get um, from uh, applicants or even medical students is like, would I do it again? Would you do it again? Um, and so I, I would like, you know, I've been asking that more and more. Uh, would you do it again? Absolutely. Okay. I, I've never regretted the decision to, to become a physician and, and to become a pediatrician and to become a general pediatrician. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's fascinating things. I mean, I, I find all of medicine to be fascinating. Uh, and I try to keep a, take a broad view in terms of what I read and, and, uh, what I, uh, follow and, and, but, but um, so I, I, I mean, I wouldn't say, gee, if you don't become a pediatrician, you're wasting your time. But mm-hmm. I think it's it's a great field. I uh, I always I try to talk my patients, uh, my 10, 12 year old patients who when I say, well, how are you doing in school? Great. What's your best subject? Science. I say, well, so you're planning to be a pediatrician. <laughs> uh, I and, love that. Yeah. So I, I try to plant that seed early. I've had a few successes. I've had I certainly have. Uh, people that were were patients of mine who have gone on and, and uh, become pediatricians as mm-hmm. well as other other specialties as well. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Young, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come in and talk. And, uh, well, thank you. We'll catch up soon. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.